Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. A couple of months ago, Pluto published a brilliant new biography of James Baldwin, the African-American writer who left an indelible mark on the face of Western politics and culture. Novels like Go Tell It on a Mountain, Giovanni's Room and Another Country were revolutionary when they were first published in the 50s and 60s, in a number of senses, and Baldwin's work continues to resonate today. But James Baldwin the person and Baldwin's political journey are no less interesting, and it's his political life and development that are particularly in focus in James Baldwin Living in Fire, the new biography by Bill V. Mullen. So it's a real pleasure to be able to round off a year that has been full of amazing conversations on this show by bringing you one more. Recorded a few weeks ago in a studio in West Lafayette, Indiana, this is Bill Mullen in conversation with Megan Maxine Williams, a PhD candidate in American Studies at Purdue University. But just before that, if you're listening to this podcast between the 2nd and the 16th of December, then you're in luck because it is Pluto's end-of-year sale – Almost all of our books are currently 50% off on plutobooks.com. So if you enjoy today's discussion, then now is definitely the moment to head over to the website and get your copy of Bill Mullen's really excellent biography. Without further ado, this is Bill and Megan. We are here today to talk about Dr. Mullen and this amazing book that he has written on James Baldwin entitled James Baldwin Living in Fire. The book focuses on Baldwin's radical and queer politics, and that is what we are going to be talking about today. And I am very excited. Um, So my name is Megan Williams, and I am a Ph.D. candidate in the American Studies Department at Purdue University with Dr. Mullen. I am equally a black feminist Baldwin scholar as well as a black feminist food studies scholar who focuses on the critical space of black women's food labor and the cultural meanings and affordances of soul food for black women. Um, I came to James Baldwin as a master's student when I took Dr. Mullen's seminar on James Baldwin. And since then, I've been invested in analyzing, critiquing, and theorizing how James Baldwin molds and presents his female characters, and in what ways, if any, these shaping signal his continued efforts at employing and understanding feminist sensibilities. So yes, so I've talked a little bit about how I came to James Baldwin, and I just want to know how you came to James Baldwin and also how you came to write this biography with this particular political vantage point, right, about Baldwin and his political persona. And in that, could you also talk about your methodology a little bit? Because I'm just, I'm super fascinated in how much it seems you brought the archive, right, mm-hmm. brought James Baldwin's archive to life in this sure. book. Well, first, thanks, Megan. Uh, it's, it's really wonderful to talk with you about James Baldwin, given uh, all the wonderful conversations we've had in the past. Um, I, you know, I've been teaching Baldwin for a long time. I started going back to the 1980s when I was living and working in New York City, and I used to teach his essays on Harlem for my students because I thought they were this is a remarkable window onto a life that a lot of them were actually leading, you mm-hmm. know. They actually reminded me, my students, of, of young James Baldwin. So mm. they, were, they were city people from uptown. And then, you know, taught his work periodically for a long time. 
And then I really circled back to him, like a lot of people did, around the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that Baldwin's so, so good about, and has always been so, so good about, is pointing out the, the problems of police violence and police racism against black communities. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a thread in all of his work, da right. dating back to his early, earliest writings on Harlan especially. Once it was clear that that was going to be the focus of the social, this new social protest movement, mm -hmm. it just felt like the time to start thinking about Baldwin again. Yeah. And of course, other people were doing the same. Both people who were leading the Black Lives Matter movement began to read and reread and cite Baldwin's writings on police violence and racism. Mm -hmm. uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote that wonderful book, Between the World and Me, in which he really pays tribute to, to the fire next time. Mm -hmm. But that was also a response to something that he had endured at a very personal way, the loss of a, a friend who had been killed by the police in, mm -hmm. in, in Maryland. And because I'm also an activist in my life. Right. Uh, he was speaking to me in that regard, too. I mean, I, rem you know, I was taking part in Black Lives Matter protests actually here at our campus at Purdue. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, you know, I wanted to teach a course on Baldwin to kind mm -hmm. of revisit all of his work. And at the same time, kind of by happenstance, I was invited to give a talk at, a, at the James Baldwin Conference in Paris, mm -hmm. uh, which is a wonderful gathering of scholars. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was preparing the class and preparing... For that talk, I knew that I really wanted to revisit his whole life and write and write this book, and and that's how it, that's how it kind of came to be. Okay, yeah, no, it's such a timely piece, and I think what you point out throughout the book about Baldwin's his political persona, right, in his literature, in his activism, but also um, internally, mm. right, and how he's always thinking through his political persona is so timely because I remember at the beginning of Black Lives Matter, I changed my I changed my cover image on Facebook to his quote where he talks about how to be black and in America is to be in a in a constant state of rage. Right. Right. Because I just felt that at that right. moment. And right. I think a lot of of people my age and people younger than me, right, living in this heightened, you know, what feels to us like this turbulent uh, social moment, Baldwin becomes really important in ways that we don't that we don't notice, yeah. right, and we don't notice that it's connected to this longer yeah. uh, political history, right, in Baldwin's life, which you point out for us in this book, and I'm very appreciative um, of that. Was it difficult to write this biography in this way? Were there things that you felt like you wanted to say and couldn't say or? Well, you know, I call it a political biography because I was really trying to focus in on the, the life of his political mind mm -hmm. from, mm -hmm. from, from the earliest years to his later years. And so I, I was less interested in talking about his daily life right. and even some things like friendships and social relationships, which right. oftentimes is what biographers are interested in. Right. I think it's an intellectual history of how he, how and why he became an American radical. Mm. And I call him a revolutionary mm -hmm. in my introduction to the book mm -hmm. because I see him like I see other great world figures like Asada Shakur and Franz Fanon and mm -hmm. uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, writers who always paid attention to the political process of the world around them. Right. And in, in Baldwin's case, I wanted to tell that story partly by showing how he was engaged not just with the world of the United States and its massive racial inequalities, mm -hmm. but I talk a lot about when he went to Paris in the 1950s, 
how the Algerian independence struggle right. really changed everything for him. Right. He, he began to think about the relationship of African-Americans at home mm-hmm. to the relationship of Arabs in the colonized world. Mm-hmm. That was a huge turning point for him. Mm-hmm. That's why by the ni- late 1960s, he feels so so much kinship with the Black Panther Party right. as they themselves are thinking about African-Americans as an oppressed national minority. Right. They end up going like to, to Algeria and trying to make connections with that movement. That That's where James Baldwin went with mm-hmm. his life. And, and I was tracking that. And I, I was trying to track that by really paying close attention, not just to the, to the published work, but to, to some of the, the letters in his uh, archive at, at both Yale and the Schomburg, mm-hmm. which were very important to the writing of the book, where you see him actually working out, for example, he has these unpublished uh, drafts of manuscripts hmm. about the Algerian War in Paris, which no one has actually had a chance to read yet. Right. And for me, these were terribly important to making it clear to what extent he was constantly preoccupied with these questions of liberation struggle, mm-hmm. not, not just for African-Americans, but for other people. Yeah. So my method was to try to, to follow that, that line of his thinking. Similarly with the Palestinian question. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is that I feel like there were big parts of James Baldwin that just have not been looked at carefully enough. Right. And one of them was his support in the 1960s and the 1970s for Palestinian freedom. Right. And there was a constant thread in his work as well. And the fact that we in the United States haven't paid much attention to that for me was a significant oversight. Right. So when I call it a political biography, mm-hmm. I was trying to fill spaces that I thought were critical to understanding the whole of this man's life. Mm-hmm. And I think you do that, mm-hmm. right? Because I think in reading this text throughout, I just keep thinking about Baldwin as a Pan-Africanist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In a way, and there's this moment where you talk about his... his um, his immersion in Pan-Africanism, yeah. right, and his his Pan-African ties. And I think that's really important because I think what Baldwin was trying to do and what you're articulating in this book is that when we think about liberation, we can't think about it on these, you know, micro, communal, mm-hmm. you know, small national levels, right? right? But we have to think about liberation as this global Dream, right? right. As, this, as this global aspiration that we all have and we all have collectively, yeah. right? And it kind of reminds me, um, you know, because I'm always thinking about Baldwin's feminist sensibilities, yeah. right? But it really reminds me of the Kambahi River Collective and mm. thinking about, you know, when we think about liberation and when we think about who needs to be free, right? Thinking about the black woman as someone who, once she is free from her oppression, right, then yeah. everybody will be. Right. I think Baldwin is also trying to articulate that, right? Yeah. Like once America is free from these social systems of oppression, yeah. right, then it creates this example and it creates the context for how global freedom can take place. Yeah. So, I- and it makes me think about, and you touched on this a little bit, but it makes me think about how you call Baldwin a literary revolutionary, Mm. right? And I just kind of want to ask you to tell us why is it important that we see Baldwin not just as a writer, not just as an American writer, a Black writer, right? But see him as a literary revolutionary. And part of the reason why I ask that question is because, you know, one of his 
close friends, Toni Morrison, also just passed away. Right. And she was always thinking about how she wanted people to identify her as a writer, right? right. And to identify her as more than just a writer of the American canon. And it's more than just a writer of the African-American canon, but to think of her more holistically, right? Yeah. And, and in a little more multidimensionally. Yeah. And I think in calling Baldwin a literary revolutionary that you're doing that work for him. Yeah. So yeah, why is it important that we think about well, Baldwin that way? I think of him as a revolutionary in several ways. Uh, one was, for example, uh, Giovanni's Room, which he publishes in mm. 1956. Yes. In the yes, middle yes, of yes. the Cold War is an extraordinary gay novel, right? Yes. He helped kick down the door for so many writers who came after, who needed to tell these stories, right? Mm -hmm. well, that's just one example. By the early 1960s, because he's so strongly critical of the American government, and it's, it's what he thought of as its too slow response to civil rights, especially mm -hmm. after things like the Birmingham church bombing in 1963, four right. black girls are killed, and he starts writing really, really sharp public critiques of the American government, the Kennedy administration. Mm -hmm. He meets with Robert Kennedy, and he he and friends give him what for, and they say, you just don't get it, you know? Medgar Evers' uh, assassination in 1963, right. this great civil rights worker, is a devastating moment. As a response to that, he, the FBI puts him on its surveillance list, and mm -hmm. they start tracking him, and he knows they're tracking him. And he threatens to write a book exposing the FBI's surveillance techniques. Mm -hmm. He goes very public, Right at a moment mm -hmm. when a lot of people were afraid to confront the mm -hmm. FBI because mm -hmm. you know that's getting some heavy stuff. Yeah, he he became one of the strongest public voices for talking about the way the American state was trying to repress dissidents. That's mm -hmm. what he saw himself as as a dissident. Right mm -hmm. in the late 1960s, when he becomes friends with Huey Newton and the Black Panther Party, he starts to call himself as he had before. He says, "You know, I'm a socialist. My approach to America is to think about." capitalist inequality, he called himself right. a Yankee Doodle socialist. Right. right. And, he said, and he said, we need a socialism for an indigenous socialism, he mm -hmm. called it, in this country that will take care of these massive inequalities of wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Well, these are the pieces of James Baldwin that I think sometimes have been left out of other, of other books. Yeah. But there's no question that he said, and he said this you know, at the end of his life, the only way to change things is to confront them. Right. And that means putting yourself on the line. It mm -hmm. means putting your, your words on the line to do it in a very public way and to be fearless. Mm -hmm. And if there's one other way in which I think James Baldwin is a, is a revolutionary example, he was absolutely fearless. There was nothing that could stop him from speaking and stop him from writing. And people like that are, are really rare. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. You know, this book has just really kind of lit this fire in me, right? Mm. And really energized me to think about Baldwin in this expanded way that you have articulated, right? Mm. And to think about how what he's dealing with, right, what he's doing and the political work that he's doing from childhood, right, on, which you articulate, right, mm. which you delineate in these different chapters, is so much connected, right, to the yeah. to the work that he writes. Yeah. Um, so this is this is important work and I'm very, very excited yeah. about it. So I have a question for you, sure. right? So we're talking about James Baldwin, we're talking about his views about liberation and we're thinking through how he's very relevant in this Black Lives Matter moment, right? That some people argue is over, but it is not. No, I agree. 
And you say in your introduction, right, that there is a prophetic valence of James Baldwin's work. Are we saying in this moment that he's a literary prophet? Mm. Because, you know, I think he's he's predicting not only the changes that are going to happen, right, and that do happen in African-American literature, right? Right. Because he talks about the protest novel. Right. um, And he kind of grows out of that. But he's also predicting the shifting Mm-hmm. And the the turbulent social political climate that we're living in now. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, I, for me, when I call Baldwin a prophet, I mean he could predict social futures. Yeah. So what's important about the fire next time in, mm-hmm. ni- in 1963 is that he absolutely understands that the appeal of the nation of Islam is to the most oppressed sections of the black community. Right. And he's particularly African-American men who, like him, had grown up, you know, in real hardship. And he says, I don't actually agree with everything that Malcolm X is saying, but I understand why people are responding to it. Mm -hmm. And he sees, in 1963, what's going to become the black power movement. Right. He sees the deep, deep structural racism. He sees the anger of people at the bottom of society. Mm-hmm. And he says that's, that's what the book is about. He said, you know, if we don't get our act together, right, right. the fire next time, right? right? And so it shouldn't surprise us that by the ne- late 1960s, what James Baldwin has sort of said is going to happen begins to happen. Mm-hmm. And he had that quality, I think, throughout his life. Like, for example, when he saw groups like the Black Panther parties, and he saw Stokely Carmichael talking about black power, you know, the idea of kind of self-determination of black people. He said, you know, this idea is real, but this idea was born when the slaves hit the shores. Yeah. And what he means is he always knew the people who were sick and tired were going to stand up at some point, mm-hmm. right? That's also black history. Mm-hmm. And so he was always looking backwards yes. in order to understand the present. Yes. And then, and then to use that to interpret the future because he was a profound student of black life in all kinds of ways, right? Mm-hmm. So in some ways for me, prophecy means being able to see the long arc of history, you know, mm. as, as Martin Luther King might say. Yeah. Uh, and he saw that as well as anybody else, I think, uh, in his time. Yeah, yes, definitely. And I, I'm so interested in his method of seeing, mm. right? Um, because, you know, you contextualize how he's how he's seen America and really how he's seen the world, right? Mm. From childhood up until right around the 1980s and his um, moving from uh, America, you know, New York and being in exile, right? Paris and right. Istanbul, right? And I'm interested in how him calling himself an interloper mm. in uh, Notes of a Native Son connects to how you are articulating him, right. right, as this person who is, who will fearlessly call the nation to the carpet, sure. right? And I want to read this quote so that we can sure. hopefully make some connections here. So in Notes of a Native Son, he says, I know in any case that the most crucial time in my own development came when I was forced to recognize that I was a kind of bastard of the West. Mm -hmm. When I followed the line of my past, I did not find it in Europe, but in Africa. Mm -hmm. And this meant that in some subtle way, in a really profound way, I brought to Shakespeare, Bach, Rembrandt, and the Stones of Paris, to the cathedral, excuse me, 
Ed Charter, and to the Empire State Building a special attitude. These were not really my creations. They did not contain my history. I might search in them in vain forever for any reflection of myself. I was an interloper. Mm -hmm. This was not my heritage. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I had no other heritage which I could possibly hope to use. I had certainly been unfitted for the jungle or the tribe. I would have to appropriate these white centuries. I would have to make them mine. I would have to accept my special attitude, my special place in this scheme. Otherwise, I would have no place in any scheme, Hmm. right? How does that connect to your work? Him calling himself an interloper and really thinking about his relationship to the U.S., his positionality, not only as a black man, but as a black gay man, sure. right? Because I think, you know, you do well to try and articulate how his sexuality, right, is right. also so ingrained in his political persona, right, right, in his political ideologies. And I'm just so interested in how he calls himself an interloper. And it just appears that that's a way of seeing, right? Yeah. That's part of how he articulated his politicalness and in his social positioning. So how do you feel that connects to your work? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, when when Baldwin decides to leave in America in 1948, he says, I had to leave, otherwise I felt like I would have died Mm. or I would have killed somebody. Mm -hmm. And what he meant was he was so fed up with the racism around him in the United States. He was so, in a way, conflicted about his sexuality that he was trying to find a place to go to kind of think it through and figure it out. Mm -hmm. And Paris became that place. But once he gets to Paris and he thinks he's going to sort of discover his identity, it's his life as an African-American, his Mm -hmm. experiences of race that begin to allow him to see Paris in Mm -hmm. ways that others could not see it. So that's why when he's arrested in 1949 and spends a night in jail, falsely accused of stealing something, He says, you know, all I saw in the French prisons were North Africans. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what? This reminds me of Harlem. Mm -hmm. And he was starting to see, because he was outside and he could bring in this experience from outside, Mm -hmm. what he was seeing in in France looked very different. So he he used exile as an interpretive tool, right? right? When he was in France and he was looking at the development of the civil rights movement in the 1950s, he was beginning to see the urgency of that, partly because he was beginning to think more globally about freedom struggle. Mm-hmm. And he decides that I have to come back. I have to be part of this, mm-hmm. right? And so he comes back in 1957 to do that. There's also that kind of sister outsider, right, element. Yeah, that, definitely. You know what definitely. I mean? That, that is to say, when he, when he begins to have conversations with black feminists, and Audre Lorde mm-hmm. about his sexuality and sort of thinking about both gay and lesbian life in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's it's that always outside status that he felt as a gay man in, mm-hmm. in America. And even I, I think when he's in France, right, he's always aware that he's on the margins of society. Right. But that gives him, it's almost like what Du Bois calls like the veil. It gives him yeah. a special insight into the way oppression works, not just for himself, but for other people. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say about, about that idea of, like, you know, I, his relationship to things like Western art. Mm. I mean, a lot of his literary influences were some of the great so-called Western European writers. Like mm-hmm. Henry James, the novelist, was a huge influence on him. But he wanted to tell stories 
that Henry James could never tell. Right. Right. So a book like, you know, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which is kind of a, a you know, a novel about Harlem society and, mm-hmm. and migration. He developed a method of, you know, people call it social realism, storytelling. Mm-hmm. He was very influenced by some of the classic, you know, canonical Western writers. Mm-hmm. But none of them had told stories about black life like this before. So I felt like he was trying to insert himself into the Western tradition, but by bringing black life into that tradition as well. And and for me, he does that really, really brilliantly. Yeah, 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 no, I agree. And you you bring up something else that I want to talk about in in your book. Um, Because again, you know, my entry to Baldwin is always thinking about his feminist sensibilities, right? And um, I love his play Blues for Mr. Charlie. And, you know, it's really kind of a a precursor, right, to the fire next time. And you acknowledge that. And I really appreciated that. But, you know, Baldwin is having all of these conversations, right? He's very good friends with Lorraine Hansberry, right? right? Who we can 100% identify as a black feminist, right? right? You know, he he has these conversations with Audre Lorde and with Nikki Giovanni, right? right? right. So he's always at the same time as he's thinking through, you know, his queer politics and, and sexuality as fluid. I think he's also trying to understand where he can intervene in the struggle of black women, Yeah. right? And I think, especially in his conversation with Nikki Giovanni and with Andre Lord, he's trying to check himself, yeah. right? And make sure that, you know, he's doing his best not to contribute, right? Yeah. To, the, to the oppression of these women that he's very close to. Yeah. And so it's in that moment, in that 1960s moment where he's having these conversations with these women, you know, he writes the play Blues Mm. for Mr. Charlie. And I'm very interested in how he characterizes Juanita in that play. And you say that Blues for Mr. Charlie is a foreshadow of the novel to come, which is If Bill Street Could Talk, right? Mm. Another important moment that that film just recently came out where the prospect of black biological reproduction is meant as a political counterpoint to the disappearance and loss of black life elsewhere, mm-hmm. particularly the erasure of black men. Mm-hmm. And you say that the ending of Blues for Mr. Charlie both naturalizes Juanita's gender and maternity and makes her an emblem of Baldwin's anxiety about black genocide as a byproduct of the long reign of U.S. racism and violence from slavery to lynching to Emmett Till. And I'm interested in this word naturalize, Mm. right? I'm interested in in what that means, Mm. right? Because I'm trying to connect that, right, to the the kind of queer politics that I think you're trying to articulate in this book here. So could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I think... um I think Baldwin had contradictions when it came to gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Blues for Mr. Charlie, Juanita is the lover to the to the young black man who's killed brutally. And she's a young civil rights activist. Right. And she's pregnant with his child. Right. And we know that Baldwin wants to see her as the future. Like mm-hmm. she's going to rise up. But there was also a tendency sometimes to, when I say naturalize, mm-hmm. When he wrote about If Beale Street Could Talk, which is also about a young black couple having a child, right? Mm-hmm. He said, well, even though the novel is dark and it is, deals with mass incarceration, he says the hope for the reader is that baby that she carries, yep. right? 
Now, that actually kind of limits the way we can think about women's political contributions to mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. In other words, it kind of equates maternity with some kind of implicit protest against, right. against structural racism. Right. When he starts sitting down with Audre Lorde and Nikki Giovanni, they really push him, I think, mm -hmm. to think much more deeply and complicated ways about black women's lives. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what was hard for him was you know, his struggle Right. At the personal level, had been with his father. He right. had a tyrannical, patriarchal father. Right. He hated patriarchy, right? Right. But I don't think he quite understood patriarchy the way black feminists were trying to explain it to him. You right. know? And so he, there's a back and forth. And I think Audre Lorde does convince him. <laughs> he said, look, Jimmy, you know, we got to do this together. Right. And what she means is black women and black men need to work side by side in this struggle. Mm -hmm. And I don't think James Baldwin disagreed with that, but I don't think he had ever thought about it that way before. Right. And in a way, she was pushing him to be more of a revolutionary. Right. Mm -hmm. She understood how much he had seen, mm -hmm. but she wanted him to see further. Mm -hmm. I think he comes out of that discussion seeing further. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't. It, it it was work for him. It was work for him. And one of the things that I was trying to capture in this book. James Baldwin was an evolving soul, right? right. He, was, he was fully capable of change. In right. fact, I, I divide the book up into sections and I follow it chronologically, but I do it chronologically because James Baldwin in the 70s and the 80s were not the same as James Baldwin as the 50s and the 60s because right. he would have these moments of recognition mm -hmm. and then he would sort of look back and think about his life differently. And he embraces that process. He, he does embrace that process. It's a part of his humanity, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, for him, that's, that's how you stay with it. But right. it's also how you, the responsibility of you as an intellectual and as a leader of your community for him mm -hmm. is to constantly understand what time it is, you know? And I think Audre Lorde was trying to tell him, hey, you know, it's mm -hmm. black feminist time. You need, right. to, you need to start thinking about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, so. I, I agree because I, and I'm so interested that he, that he writes that play during this time where he's really immersed and really engaged in um, black power, yeah. right? Um, and with the Black Panther Party, because there's If Bill Street Could Talk, right, which is very much about, you know, the hope of, yeah. of the black community being in this pregnancy, right? right? And there's this um, soliloquy, right, mm -hmm. that Juanita says at the end of the play when, you know, Richard... We know that Richard is killed right, and right. and his uh his murderer, right, has been exonerated or whatever, has been found not guilty, right? And she says, I hope I'm pregnant. Yeah. Right? Right. I hope I'm I hope pregnant. I'm pregnant. She right. wanted very desperately to be pregnant with Richard's child. And I just think it's so interesting that James Baldwin is articulating black women's bodies and black women's reproduction in this kind of hope for yeah. the African American community, right? Yeah. As he's immersed in black power, but also as he's having these conversations with Nikki Giovanni and Audre Lorde, because what Nikki Giovanni, Audre Lorde, and even Tony K. Benbar, right, are also mm. trying to say to, you know, proponents of black power is that it adds to black women's oppression, yeah. right, to be thinking about their reproduction not existing for themselves and not belonging to themselves, but existing to, you know, populate the earth. That's right. Right. Yeah. With black children. Right. Because, right. you know, we have Dick Gregory, who James Baldwin is also talking to. You articulate that in this book, who, you know, 
has this article about like, you know, my wife, we got 10 children, right? right. And that's, that's my answer to genocide. Right. right. That's my answer to black genocide. But then again, you know, we also have these black feminists like Tony K. Van Barr, who's thinking about black women's reproduction, you know, thinking about the birth control pill, right? right. As, as liberation or as oppression. Yeah. So yeah, I just think it's, it's, it's interesting that that all of that is going on in that moment. And I do think, you know, you're right in saying that in all of the amazingness, right, about James Baldwin's political work and about his work with LGBTQ rights, yeah. right, um, which, of course, wasn't called that then, but we know that as that now. And you do that really well, and I'm very happy to see that that you are doing that. But yeah, you know, it's just that moment where he's he's doing all of that, but he's continuing to have to be called to the carpet himself. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, About yeah. how he has to see the connection between sexuality, not only in like this queer politics vantage, mm. but also about sexuality as being connected to black feminism, right? Yeah. As being connected to what's happening with black women, yeah. right? What's happening to their bodies in these moments. Because right. lynching, right, is important to him, especially in the 1960s. Yeah. And so much of what we don't always articulate as lynching, right, or as violence against black bodies is, you know, the black women have always struggled to own their own bodies, right? right. Especially since slavery. So, yeah. you know, yeah. he, um, <laughs> you know, this question of the black family and reproduction was very real to him. You mm-hmm. know, he had eight siblings himself yep. who he helped to raise. In his later novels, like uh, Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone and Just Above My Head, mm. and even Beale Street, mm. he starts to actually look at the black family more closely. And course he did in, in Go Tell on the Mountain too in his, his first book but I think he begins to see the black family as one under siege in America constantly mm. Mm. but also as a refuge okay. from some of the violence that's outside mm-hmm. although he's also <laughs> very careful to pay attention to things like domestic violence and right. even rape right, right. as they, right. as black women experiencing them mm-hmm. I think the book that people don't talk about very often one of his last books he wrote was uh, about the so-called Atlanta child murders in 1981 mm-hmm. when you had dozens of black boys disappearing, mm-hmm. right, over a summer. And it was a kind of a quiet genocide that finally broke through into the rest of America. And Baldwin went there. Yeah. And he said, i got to figure out what's going on here. And one of the things he argues in that book, he said, what's happening to these young black boys and what's happening to black children in this country is that they're expendable. Their lives are expendable. Yes. So it was a really real anxiety for him that even the black family, even even the most basic elements of black life could be taken away, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I feel like, you know, in Beale Street, when he's thinking about the hope of the child to be, I mean, he said, you know, he said something really interesting. He said, you know, people say to you, you know, you're black and you're gay and you've seen so much so much of the, the negative side of American life. And he said, but, you know, i got to remain optimistic. I'm a human being. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to find points of hope, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think in Beale Street, he was trying to find that point of hope. Mm-hmm. And so for me, in a certain way, that's also what's kind of revolutionary about him. He, was, he would never accept defeat. He would right. never accept defeat for himself or for his people. Right. Sometimes his, his answers were, were stronger than others. 
but he never stopped trying to give other people hope. I think yeah. that's one of the things that yeah. was he was about. Yeah, he never stops answering. Exactly, right? and that's, exactly. And that's so much a part of how he understands love. Yes, right? you know? yes. He understands love as this hope. Right? Absolutely. This hope that stretches from the the individual, right, to yeah. the family unit, yeah. right, and then larger to the community. Yeah. And he's hoping that in these articulations of love, we're not only thinking about, you know, sex and sexuality, but we're thinking about hope and how love can give us hope, yeah. right, and loving each other, Right. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's part of the work that we have to do and figure out how yeah. to access and achieve liberation. Yeah. Right. So I think love was a revolutionary force for him. Oh, and, and 100%. he said, I can love you and disagree with you unless your point of view takes from my humanity. humanity. Mm-hmm. And what he was trying to do constantly, even in his writing, right? He was really trying to move white folks, right? Because mm-hmm. he understood he didn't want to give up on white people. This was, a big, this was another thing that I find interesting about him. Right. As much as he had gone through, uh, he, said, he said, look, if we're going to change this world, right, we've got to get people in the majority somehow to come over and see our side of things. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean he loved them all, but it meant that there was a capacity, yes. right? He hoped that there was still a capacity for something like brotherly love mm-hmm. across the color line. And and I and I think in some ways was also revolutionary about it is how successful he was at that. You mm-hmm. know, books like The Fire Next Time, they moved so far out into multiple communities. They started, they started changing all kinds of people's lives. They started mm-hmm. getting, you know, white students up in the north to come south. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was on the cover of Time magazine. You know, mm-hmm. at a time when uh, very few African Americans can do that. So he was able to to popularize the most radical ways of thinking about right. what needed to happen in the United States. Well, thank you thank for spending thank this time you. with thank me you, talking Megan. about Baldwin. Um, this, is a, this is an amazing book. Thank you. you know, thank you. So. It's an honor to talk with you about Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was Bill Mullen and Megan Maxine Williams talking about the life and legacy of James Baldwin. If you've enjoyed this discussion, then do consider leaving us a review and sharing the link to the show amongst your friends and networks. And once again, at the time of recording, Pluto is currently offering 50% off almost all of our books through our website, and that sale is on until the 16th of December, so do head over to plutobooks.com to check that out as well. This has been another episode of Radicals in Conversation. We'll be back in January, but until then, thanks for listening and have a happy new year.